you're listening to the Deeper Christian Bible Study Series in the Book of Ephesians. Thank you for joining me, Nathan Johnson, on an in-depth, verse-by-verse study of this incredible book by Paul. Now, let's dive into the lesson for today. Well, good morning. Uh, If you have your Bibles, Ephesians chapter 1. This is good. And uh, we're, uh, <clears throat> we're moving into a brand new section. Woo! That's going to be a good day. And uh, we've been walking through the blessing section, uh, which is, goes from chapter 1, verse 3, down to verse 14. And uh, now we're entering into uh, the first prayer section. And so if you have your Bibles, just want to read uh, just the entire prayer, uh, which begins in verse 15 of Ephesians chapter 1. So this is what Paul says. He says, therefore, I also, after hearing of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, mentioning you in my prayers, so that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of him, that the eyes of your understanding may be enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance among the saints. And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe, according to the working of his mighty power? I just love that prayer. Uh, Paul, in in the book of Ephesians, has two distinct prayers. Uh, One of them here, obviously, is here in uh, chapter 1. The other one is in chapter 3. And it's interesting that uh, in this first prayer, Paul is basically praying for enlightenment, uh, this idea that you would gain wisdom and insight and knowledge in who God is and all that he is doing that you would grab a hold of and, and understand some key truths. Then it's fascinating to me that as you come in chapter 3, his other prayer is not so much for the knowledge or the enlightenment idea, it's for this whole idea of enablement, that he's praying that God would do something in and through you. So as we get into this prayer, and again, we're gonna, it's going to take us a couple of weeks to get through this, uh, likely. Uh, so so you'll have to bear with us. But, uh, but what I want to do is I just want to give you the quick highlight summary and then specifically look at verses 15 and 16. Um, as you get into the, actually the heart of the prayer itself, it really gets into, gets into the prayer in the middle of verse 17 as Paul begins to pray that God would give you the spirit of wisdom, revelation, and the knowledge of him. That somehow your, your understanding would just be, you, you would grab a hold of and begin to comprehend and be able to process through this phenomenal reality of all that Jesus is and all that he is longing to do in and through your life. And I don't know about you, but I, I need that. In fact, I, I pray that all the time. Jesus, give me the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you. That somehow you've got you to expand my insight. You've got to expand who I am so I, so I can get a hold of all that you are doing. In other words, let me understand. Let me see all that you're doing. <clears throat> As he moves in verse 18, he begins to pray for three specific things, uh, which really is the heart of the prayer. And uh, we're going to be looking at these more in depth in the future. But uh, one of them <clears throat> is that you would know the hope of your calling. Number two, that, we, that you would know what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance. And then number three, that you would understand, verse 19, the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe. And that kind of is the emphasis or the essence, the heart uh, of his prayer itself. Uh, but I wanna, what I want to do this morning is I want to look at verse 15 and 16 with you. And again, I just want to read that so it's fresh in our mind. Paul says, therefore, I also after hearing of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, do not cease giving thanks for you, mentioning you in my prayers. Uh, my translation, the first word in my verse, says therefore. 
And you know as good Bible studiers, every time you see the word therefore, you ask the word, what is the therefore, therefore, right? So obviously the word therefore is, is it's bringing you, it's tying you back into a previous concept. So over here, Paul's talking about this overwhelming blessings of God. So if you're going to understand properly what he's praying for you, you need to understand what's taking place in the blessings. And we've been walking through this for countless weeks <laughs> up to this point. But again, the whole blessing section is focused on the fact that, hey, you are blessed. That God is doing this incredible, phenomenal thing in your life called blessing. That he is a blessed God, and this blessed God just cannot help himself but give forth blessing. So it's like this blessing, this blessed God has this thing bubbling forth within him, and he's just like, oh, i got to do something with all this blessing. And so what does he do according to verse 3? He blesses you with every spiritual blessing. And again, the very heart of this idea of the blessing is not that God gives you things. He gives you himself, which becomes everything that you need. And again, it goes back to the whole idea of 2 Peter 1.3, that everything that you need for life and for godliness is found in one single place, which is Christ Jesus. So here you, are, you have this blessed God who just cannot help himself, but he's going to give blessing. And what is the blessing he's going to give you? Jesus. He's going to give you himself. So this isn't Jesus plus something. This isn't, hey, you get a blessing outside of Jesus. This isn't, hey, wouldn't it be great? I'm a Christian and I have Jesus, but oh, I need this thing over here. This is, hey, if I need something, really what I need is not a thing. I need him. And I need a, a greater revelation. I, I need an expansion of his life. I need to have a greater reality of who he is in my life. So it's not that I go to God and ask for peace. Jesus is my peace. I don't go and ask God for joy. He is the fullness of joy. I, I don't go and say, hey, God, I need some love. He is my love. So the whole emphasis then of the blessings is not that God is giving you these things as if it's something you need outside of Jesus. He gives you himself, which becomes everything that you need for your life, which is awesome. Because it tells you the moment you have Jesus, you have all that you need. That is actually sufficient. That you can just, oh, you can rest. And if I need something, really what I need is him, an expansion of him. So if I look at my life and I go, I, you know, I really need some, I need some more joy, then don't go looking for joy, go looking for Jesus, because he will give you joy. It's that kind of an idea, which is such a great idea. So as you go through this blessing then, again, we, it's not a comprehensive list. Paul's just giving you a, a variety of these blessings. But it's amazing that every single blessing that he mentions in the passage finds its fulfillment in Christ Jesus. And Paul says, based upon that reality, based upon all that he is doing, based upon the fact that you are blessed, therefore, he says, as he comes thundering into verse 15, I've heard of something. And Paul says, oh, what have I heard? He says, I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints which in one aspect is the reality of all the blessings. So Paul says, here, here, here's a whole list of the blessings that God has for you. And then basically what Paul says is, oh, I've been hearing that you've been living in the blessing in one sense. And he says, I've, I've heard distinctly of two things in your life. I've heard of your faith and I've heard of your love. Isn't it an interesting thought of how people or what people think when they think of us? It's been, it's been an interesting pondering that here is Paul, and as he's thinking about those in Ephesus, you realize there are two things that come to mind whenever he thinks of the Ephesians. What is it? 
their faith, and their love. Wouldn't it be interesting if you were known for something? And it wasn't because of your talent, and it wasn't because of your, uh, your sports athleticism. Uh, it wasn't because you had a lot of wisdom. It wasn't because of your good looks. It wasn't because of whatever it may be, right? What if you were known for something far better than all that? See, what if you were known? What, what if when people thought of you, they went, oh, you know what I think of whenever I think of so-and-so? I think of their faith, and I think of their love. Do you know what we would call people who, who live like that? I think we'd have to call those people Christians. <laughs> because you realize that Christians are known by their faith, and they're known by their love. And Paul says, I've heard of that in your life. Now, again, this is going to be a little bit of a review, but faith, it's interesting, uh, faith, it's the same word as believe, right? Uh, we, as Christians, are called believers. Woo! Why? Because we're the ones who actively are doing believe, belief, that we are believing. And what are we believing? We're not just believing concepts, that there is this reality that we have staked our life upon. Again, the illustration I keep coming back to is the idea of the airplane, right? And here's this airplane and we look out the window, or we look out the door, and I shove you, right, out the door, which I've always wanted to do. <laughs> and as you're falling, right, I, I huck this parachute towards you, because I figured you might need one. And uh, as you're falling, and as the parachute's falling, right, I yell down, do you believe in the parachute? And you're like, yes, it's right there. That, that's not belief. That is, you might have mental assent in a parachute, but that's not going to help you. What's going to help you? You swimming over somehow in the air, right? Over, over to the parachute. You put the parachute on, and now you cling to the parachute for ev with everything you've got. In fact, a proper application of a parachute is you strap that parachute so tight to your body that it actually becomes a second skin. Isn't that, isn't that a neat thought? That, that you're, you're so cinched into this parachute that the parachute's not getting off, and you're not getting out of it. And if you're falling from the sky and you have a parachute, I don't know about you, but I'd be clinging to that parachute with everything that I have because it is my sole means of salvation. And you realize Jesus is that reality in our life. And it's not, do you believe in Jesus? Oh, yes, I believe. I have some mental ascent. The demons have the mental ascent. That's not going to help you. Mental ascent does not get you to heaven. What gets you to heaven? Putting on the Lord Jesus Christ. As Isaiah said, he is our robe of righteousness, that, that I am to apply him into my life. I'm to strap him on, and I'm to cling to him for everything that I have. Why? Because he is my sole means of salvation. That's what it means to believe. And when you do that action, we call that faith. Uh, there's another idea of faith, which is this idea of uh, invoking the activity of a second party. Let me explain. Uh, here I am, the first party, and I begin to recognize, or as we would say around here, I don't, I don't have it in my pockets. I don't have what is sufficient to meet my need. So I turn my gaze to a second party, who, whom is Jesus. And I, and I look at Jesus and I say, Jesus, look, I, I, I don't have it within myself. So I'm invoking your activity. I'm asking that you would come and do the very thing that I, in and of myself, cannot do. That you're going to have to source my life. That I'm going to lean upon you in this abiding relationship, and I'm going to depend upon you, and I'm going to have you, through your indwelling of the Holy Spirit, come and begin to produce something through my life 
that I cannot in and of myself do. How am I going to walk in victory? How am I going to walk in purity? How am I going to walk in righteousness? How on earth am I going to walk in joy? How on earth am I going to function day to day by day as a Christian? Well, you're not going to do it very well if you're going to try to do this in your own ability, in your own strength, in your own resource. So in faith, I turn to the one who can, and I'm invoking his activity. I'm allowing him to do something in and through my life that I cannot do. And that's called faith. And in other words, it's, it's resting, it's leaning upon the strong arm of the Lord. It's, it's allowing his enabling grace to empower my life. And Paul says, you know what I've heard about the Ephesians church? I've heard about the Ephesians church that, that they are living in that reality. That they've actually taken on the fullness of the blessing. That they've put on the Lord Jesus Christ like a parachute. That, that, that he is their robe of righteousness. That they are not living by their own strength or their own resource or their own, or, or their own whatever. That they are living by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit within them. And by the way, we call those people Christians. And he says, wow, I, I, I've, I've been hearing these things about you. And what is he hearing? That you're Christians. That you're actually doing the activity of a Christian, which is belief. Oh, I'm hearing something about your life. What is it? That you're functioning as you're called to function. That you're not living in the midst of sin. You're living in the reality of, of, of heaven. Just, oh, that's awesome. Are you known for that? Because we're going to recognize that if you call yourself a Christian, that's what people should know about you. That when they think of you, they should go, oh, they believe. They don't just believe, but they believe. They're not just little believers. They're believers. That boy, they are, they are clinging to this thing called Christ. And I can't explain how they're living. Which goes back to my favorite quote by Ian Thomas. And of course, you know, Ian Thomas, uh, which is always talking about this kind of stuff. But he said, if you can explain your Christianity in terms of you, whether it be your willpower, your resource, your talent, your whatever, then although you may have the Christian life, you're not yet living it. And he goes on to say that, the Christian life that you're living is to be utterly inexplainable to the world around you. That when someone looks at your life, they should not be able to describe or somehow comprehend how on earth you are living out the life that you are living outside of Jesus. In other words, Jesus becomes the only explanation for your life. Do you know how good that is? See, I, I don't want to just live the country club version of Christianity which is so popular in our day. So I, I don't want to just check in down, down at the church every Sunday and you know, click my ticket and, you know, and tip my hat to the whatever and, and, and go through the motions and have all the verbiage and have all the, but not have the life within. See, I don't want to talk about the fact that I believe and then I don't believe in the everyday reality of my life. See, I don't want to talk about the fact that God is great and God is grand and yet then I just live in the puniness of the day-to-day -day living. See, I don't want to talk about the fact that he is triumphant and that the word of God says that I, I am more than a conqueror. And then you look at my life, and my life is just full of junk. See, what would it look like to actually live out the fullness, the reality of the Christian life? What if, in fact, I was known as a Christian? And what you heard about me and what you knew about me was that, wow, they live by faith. I think that would change, I think that would change the world.
And if you look at modern society, what they think of when they think of Christianity is not this. Hey, when you look at how Christians are portrayed in the movies or on the television stuff or in the magazines or in the books or in the whatever, you realize it's not this kind of stuff. So obviously what they're hearing is not this. What they're seeing is not the reality. What they're seeing is a dumbed-down version. What they're, what they're seeing is a membership to a country club. What, what they're seeing is a group gathering together having potlucks. What they're not seeing is a reality of faith living in and through our lives. And wouldn't it be fascinating if what you were known for was not so much your talent or your sports athleticism or your wisdom or your whatever. Wouldn't it be neat if you were known for your faith? Now Paul says, not only have I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus, but I've also heard of your love toward all the saints. Obviously the word their love is the word agape. And we typically in the church translate the word agape as God's love. And there, there is a, that does make sense in a lot of ways. Uh, there's a few passages where you can't interpret it that way, but the idea of agape is this unconditional, overwhelming, aggressive kind of love. That, how we often understand it is you can't earn it, you can't get rid of it. That it, It's aggressive. Uh, in other words, hey, you can beat this kind of love, hey, you can put a crown of thorns upon this love, you can take this kind of love and nail it to a tree, and it's still just going to bleed, suffer, and die all over you. Because, hey, you, you can't, hey, this is aggressive. Hey, this thing is intense. Hey, this thing is, hey, going after you. Hey, this thing is breathing down your neck. Hey, this thing is not conditional in the sense of you made me happy, so I'll, I'll extend it. You made me sad, I'm going to re revoke it. It's not that kind of a thing. This is, hey, this is always there. It's always pressing forward. This is, this is unrelenting. And you realize God is this. 1 John chapter 4, verse 8 and 16, God is agape. That it's not that he just has love, that the very essence, when you get down to the very heart, if you were to cut the heart of God open, you realize what would ooze forth is this. That, that you cannot separate the reality. And we're not talking emotion. We're not talking about goosebumps. We're not, we're, not, we're not talking about that stuff. But you realize when you get to the very heart of God, what you have is this aggressive, unconditional, overwhelming, pressing in, hey, you can beat me and nail me to a cross, but I'm still going to just love, right, love all over you. Aggressive kind of love. And by the way, we're really glad that God has that <laughs> and is that. Because while we were still enemies of God, Christ died for us. Why? Agape. Because he was able to look beyond the immediate of how we were behaving and see the reality of who we are and what he was wanting to do in, our, in the redemption of our lives. Isn't that a great thought? I think so oftentimes we, we look at a person and we're, we're, we're looking at how they treat us. We're looking at how they're behaving. We're, we're looking at how they make us feel. We're looking at how they whatever. And we forget to look past that to the reality of all that God is wanting to do in and through their life. But God does not look at where we're at. He looks at where he wants us to be. That's encouraging. That's actually amazing to me. Because here I am, I'm shaking my fist in God's face saying, hey, I want to live in rebellion. I want to do what I want. I want pleasure when I want it, how I want it. And I'm just, I'm demanding my own way. And God says, look, that, that's going to destroy you. But that's actually not how I made you. I'm going to actually look beyond where, how you're behaving right now. And in, in the midst of this behavior, I'm going to love you so much so that I'm going to 
bring about a redemption, a, a provision, so you don't have to stay there, so that I can get you here and change you into this, which is my longing and my dream for you. And he doesn't see you here. He sees you here. Why? He's love. So this is not an emotion. Well, you obeyed me, so hey, I'll, I'll be really nice to you. Oh, you didn't obey me. I'm going to stomp on your head. Fucking idiobus. Burn, baby, burn. Right? It's, it's, not, it's not that. And you realize the greatest picture of agape love is the cross. Because we didn't earn it. We did not deserve it. And yet, this sacrificial, aggressive, unrelenting, unconditional love that you did not earn, you could never have earned, you, you could not have just, you, you are not worthy of it, he still died for you. Now, that God, who is love, has come in to invade your life. So he has purified your life, he has cleansed your life, right? You've put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore, that God of the universe has come to invade your life. Right, we call this Pentecost, right? And the outside God is coming on the inside, and the God who is love, via his spirit, is now inside of you. So guess what he's, what, he's, what, guess what he's gonna produce through your life? This. And you should be oozing forth the love of God. Well, I cannot do that. You're right. You can't, which is why you have to have faith. Because when you have that neighbor that just drives everybody crazy, you know that roommate that nobody ever loves to spend time with? <laughs> Quit looking around the room, right? But, <laughs> right? But, but hey, when you have those people, hey, that family member that just drives you up a wall. Hey, when you have, you, you know the people I'm talking about, right? The EGRs, right? The extra grace required people, you know? <laughs> hey, God, God has those people in your life for your sanctification, praise the Lord. But you realize that when those people show up in your life, you in and of your own ability, cannot love that person like you are called to love that person. So in faith, you're going to have to turn to Jesus and say, Jesus, through your spirit inside my life, you're going to have to bring about something that I cannot do, which is love that individual. Because all I'm seeing is their behavior, or all I'm seeing is their attitude, or all I'm seeing is this action, but somehow I've got to look beyond the action to how you have made them and what you were wanting to do in their life, and I need to love them despite what I'm seeing here. Because that's what he said in our life. And wouldn't it be amazing if, if the love of God, this God who is love, who has invaded our life, would just start oozing forth out of every pore of our body? And wouldn't it be neat if we were known, not just by our belief and faith, but wouldn't it be interesting if we as a group of, it, group of people were known by our love? I think Jesus said something like that. Didn't he? He looks at his disciples and says, hey, they, the world is going to know you by something. Oh, what are they going to know me by? Your love for each other. You realize the place of the greatest love should be inside the church. Because, hey, if I'm filled with a God of love and you are filled with a God of love and that the God who is love, who is living inside of our life, is oozing forth out of our life in love, you would think that a church gathering would just be whoa this place is full of love and we are going out of our way to serve and to minister and wash each other's feet why because that's the expression of love and yet isn't it sad 
that more often than not, the churches that we go to are not defined by love, it's defined by bickering and brokenness and contention and disunity and nitpicking and whatever, whatever, whatever. And so oftentimes we're so focused on the doctrine, which is important. But if you're, if you're so focused on doctrine that the doctrine hasn't invaded your life and it's actually living out of you, then you do not have good doctrine. Did that make any sense? Because you might know all the right things and you can say all the right things, but you'll still die and go to hell because it's not about information. This is about transformation. And you realize that the doctrine that you believe should not just merely be head stuff. It should be life stuff. And you should not only have doctrinal, you should not be, have, a, have a heresy of your doctrine. That's true. Your doctrine should be solid. There should be no heresy in your doctrine. But there should be, be, there should be, no, there should be no heresy in your behavior. It's not just the doctrine that's important. It's the behavior of your life that demonstrates the doctrine. So if you have good doctrine but bad behavior, you have bad doctrine. Because the doctrine should be pressing forth the reality of the behavior. And you might have a little doctrine that's a little off, and that needs to be fixed. I understand that. But if you have the behavior, I think you're doing better in some aspects. Don't go crazy with that. But does that make sense? And it's interesting to me that what we should be known for it's not just our belief and our faith, but also the behavior of that, which should de demonstrate itself in love. Now, what does love practically look like? Oh, bleed, suffer, die, pour your life out, roll up your sleeves, and wash the feet of the people around you. That was Jesus. What does love look like? It looks like a cross. Which means that love, for the person doing the action of love, is probably going to hurt. It does not feel good when you're nailed to a cross. And yet that is a, the greatest expression of love. Hey, love probably isn't going to feel good when, when you're having to take the place of humility and wash the stinking feet of the people around you. Hey, that's not, that doesn't feel good to the one who's loving. So love's going to cost you something. Hey, hey love, love is pricey. Love is painful at times. Love isn't just a, ooh, I feel good all the time. And that, there may be an element to that, but you realize love is looking at what is in front of you and not seeing what you're seeing. You're looking at what could be and what should be and what all that God has redeemed and what he's longing to do. And aren't you glad that's how God sees you? That he doesn't see you in your sin. He doesn't see you in your behavior. He doesn't see you in your attitude. He doesn't see you in your motive. That he's going to deal with that and that that's really important. And hey, he's not just going to let this remain but he looks beyond that and sees what is supposed to be and what should be and what he's redeemed and what he's called you up into and the fact that you're a son or a daughter of the king and that he's, he's transforming your life and he sees that and goes, oh, see this behavior? I'm willing to do something here to get you here. Wouldn't it be amazing if we saw our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ like that? And what if the little things that drive us crazy about the people around us, what if, what if we would... What if we would show them love? Which means it's going to cost you. Which means it may be a little painful. Might drive you a little crazy. But you're looking past the immediate and you're looking at, oh, look at what God could do in their life. Oh, look at, look at the stuff that he could do in their life. 
Now, wouldn't it be amazing if a group of those kind of people gathered together? Do you know what we'd have to call that? Church. Yeah, which is a group of Christians. Sorry, I teased that out. But yeah, we'd have to call that church, wouldn't we? Because church is not a place where we sing. Well, we will sing. Might as well. Hey, it's not just a place where we're going to listen to sermons. We might as well do that too. We might as well talk about Jesus. But wouldn't it be neat if the church is a place where we can come and just extend the grace and the love and the mercy of Christ to each other? And you realize the world should look upon the church and go, whoa, I do not understand, but that place is a place of love. And could you imagine what would happen if a non-Christian walked into a building full of that? They couldn't escape, could they? And if you look at our culture, the number one thing the culture is desperately, desperately looking for is love. And we are looking for love in all the wrong places. We're looking for some satisfaction and fulfillment in and of ourselves or in entertainment or in drugs or in sex or whatever. And we're, we're, trying, to, we're trying to fulfill this thing where we, we, where we feel loved. But that should be the church. It's interesting when you look at the revivals of, of, of history, what you begin to see is that God begins to move upon people and there's conviction and there's repentance. That's very true. And the word of God is lifted up. That's true. And the worship, it becomes pure. That's very true. But it's interesting that the behavior of the people changes. And isn't it interesting that in the revivals, it's like God begins to melt the hearts and there's this deep humility and there's this overwhelming love that begins to characterize that group of people who's experiencing revival. Which makes sense then that as these people are walking, these unbelievers are walking down the road and they begin to, they just feel this pressing going on in this, this location or they hear this singing and they come in and they're, they're captured. They're sucked in. Why? Because it's oozing forth the love of Christ. See, I want to be known for that. See, I, I want this place to be known for that. See, I, I want our churches to be known for that. And do you know how sad it is when there's bickering and fighting and disunity and chaos swirling in the church? Why? What is that declaring to the world? That we don't have the love. Which is the very thing we're supposed to be known for. That breaks my heart. Paul says, I've been hearing something. I've heard of your overwhelming faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But I've, I've heard of this behavior, this love, this nature of Christ that is oozing out of your life. I've been hearing that this church, whoa, is just full of love, full of the life of Christ. Now, Paul goes on, and he says, because of all these things, I, verse 16, I do not cease giving thanks for you, mentioning you in my prayers. Uh, that phrase, do not cease giving thanks for you, uh, in the Hellenistic period of which Paul is writing, that was a common statement in a lot of letters. And it doesn't necessarily mean he's without stopping praying. That, I mean, that wasn't grammatically correct. That, that doesn't mean that he's just, always praying for the, for the church in Ephesus. That's probably true. They, they were big on his heart. I get that. So they probably came up all the time in the prayers. I, I get that. And there is a reality of this whole praying without ceasing thing. I get that. And I, and I understand that Paul's overwhelmed by the reality of what's happening. I, I do get that. But you realize it's just this idea that Paul's saying, man, you guys have come to mine, and I just, 
my heart is so full that I just, I cannot stop giving thanks for what God is doing in you. That, that every time I'm praying, I'm thinking, whoa, the Corinthian church needs a lot of help. But then I think there is hope. There are the Ephesians. <laughs> Isn't that neat? I love the fact that when you hear the reality of what's going on in a believer, when you actually see the life of Christ being demonstrated in somebody, you realize that should cause our hearts to sing. And that should come forth in our praying that, man, we just cannot stop giving thanks for God for all that is taking place. Wouldn't it be neat, instead of nitpicking and hearing, hearing about this great movement of God somewhere, that we're just like, well, and we start nitpicking that, wouldn't it be neat if it was just like, oh, God, you're doing something neat. Like, I don't, I don't know what you think, of, I don't even know what to think of, this whole Kanye West thing about him becoming a Christian. And the first time I heard it, I was like, I doubt it. Because it's Kanye West. I mean, if you're going to pick like the top five secular musician artists in today's world, he'd be in that list. Right? And of all the people who's arrogant and prideful and just, he'd be on my list. So I hear, oh, he became a Christian. And what did I do? Doubt, doubt it. It's not going to last. It's poppy. You realize what I should be doing is, oh, thank you, Jesus. Protect him. Because he has a platform. He has a voice. And whether you like his music or not, I don't even care. But you realize I should be praying for the man. That God would use him and strengthen him and deepen him. And, and my heart should be rejoicing. Not nitpicking. Do you know how convicting that is? Because more often than not in the church, we do the, the nitpicky thing. Well, I don't fully agree with their theology. They're going to probably go to hell. See, should I just be rejoicing in the fact that they're going after Jesus? I'm not talking about dumbed-down theology. I'm not saying throw out doctrine. I'm not saying any of that stuff. But why is it that I am not like Paul? Oh, I just can't stop giving thanks for you, mentioning you in my prayers. So, two application points. What are you known for? Are you known for something outside of Jesus? Because if you are, that, that needs to be surrendered and given over to Jesus. Because what I want to be known for, what Paul says you should be known for, is your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and that love for all the saints. That the life of Christ within is bubbling forth out of your life and is being demonstrated in the reality of all that he is longing to do. That this is not just, oh, I have a head knowledge things. There's a lot of people in the Christian church today who are these phenomenal scholars, and I go, yeah, I know they have a head knowledge. But then I look at their life, and I go, but I don't know if they have it. Because they have a lot of intellectualism, but they don't have, it's not coming out in their behavior. That's not, that's not as sufficient. Because knowing it is not enough. See, I don't want to just be known for my faith, my, my, my grasp, my belief. See, I want to be known for the behavior of that lived out on the everyday streets of my life in love. But then secondly, a second application point, is are you continually giving thanks and praying? 
Wouldn't it be neat if you just, because of your faith and because of your love, you just couldn't help yourself but give thanks unto God? That you looked at what God is doing around you, just going, Woo, God, you're getting a hold of this person. Are they the finished product? No. Look in the mirror. Are you a finished product? No. <laughs> but shouldn't I look at your life and go, wow, you're growing. You're pressing in. And not that you're not, maybe you haven't done everything perfectly. That, I get that. But man, God's doing some neat stuff in your life. This last week I was in Tennessee and there's this kid I've just been pouring into and pouring into and pouring into. And I've known him since he was probably, I don't know, five or something. He's now 16. And uh, he's not doing it perfectly. <laughs> by, by any stretch of the means. He's growing. He's struggling. He's a teenage boy, which that alone needs prayer. But, <laughs> but it's been so encouraging to me to look at his life. And, it's, and even, if, even in his trip up, he just like, I just, I, I want God to change me. And I have a heart for the inner city. And I just have this burden. And I, see, that should cause my heart to sing. Because I'm seeing God do something. See, wouldn't it be neat if we didn't just see the immediate of someone's life around us? We saw the potential of all that God is wanting to do in and through them. And therefore, we began to praise God and begin to pray that God would do this now in their life. So what are you known for? And secondly, hey, are you like Paul giving thanks when you hear of faith and love? Hey, are you praying when you hear of the faith and the love of the people around you. I want that. And I think if we as a church live this, I think we might have to be known as Christians and the body of Christ. And in Acts 17, 6, where they bring this guy named Jason and they say, hey, what, what are you doing? And the accusation against Jason in Acts 17, 6 is he's one of those guys who turned the world upside down. See, that's what I want in this generation. How's that going to take place? That. This is going to have to come out of your life. Not in mere intellectualism or in mere theory, but in the reality of your living. We need to be Christians. Not just in name only, but in word and in deed. Let's pray. <clears throat> Lord, I need this. Lord, I want to celebrate when I see your working in the lives of people around me. When I hear of the Kanye Wests coming to you, Lord, I don't want to have doubt. I want to have rejoicing. And I want to be praying for him that you would somehow drag him into the great realities of the cross, that you would press him down the narrow way, that you would do such a working in his life that that the platform that, that he has built on secularism and his own selfishness and his own pride would somehow be leveraged by the kingdom of God to proclaim the message of the cross. Lord, I want to rejoice in those kind of things. Lord, when I, when I look at the people around me and I see, see you moving upon their life, Lord, I don't want to get discouraged or go, wow, they're not even there yet. Why haven't? Lord, I want to rejoice in what you are doing. And I want to be praying for them that you would continue to press them down the narrow way of the cross. Lord, when I look at my life, I want, I want to be one full of thanksgiving 
thanking you for what you have done and the fact that you are pressing me down the narrow way of the cross and praying that I would not cease but press forward all the more. Lord, I want my life to be known for one thing, you. Lord, I don't care if the world knows my intellect or lack thereof. Lord, I don't care if they know my looks or lack thereof. Lord, I don't care if they, they know about my talent or lack thereof, my athleticism or lack thereof. Lord, I, I want to be known in this world for one thing, of my faith in you. That no matter the situation, no matter the hardship, no, no matter that which is around me, no matter the family or the financial or the whatever, that my confidence, my gaze is upon the King of Kings. Lord, Lord I, I want to be so tight with you that, that I am clinging to you like a parachute, that it's like a second skin in my life. And in fact, you don't know where I leave off and the parachute starts. See, I, I want to get that tight with you, Jesus. So that in every circumstance, whether good or bad, whether it's easy or hard, that I'm not depending upon my strength or my wisdom or my whatever, but I'm leaning upon you in your strength and your wisdom and your ability and your provision. And, and I'm living in dependence upon you moment by moment by moment. Lord, that you who are love, who has come to invade my life, it wouldn't just be, yes, huh, I have love, but that love itself would just ooze forth out of my life. And Lord, this love is supposed to be patient and kind and not easily angered and it's not boastful. And all that 1 Corinthians 13 describes that love is, that is, that is, to, is what is to define my life. Lord, I need that. And Lord, I cannot produce that in myself. I, I cannot pull that off in my own resource. Which means in faith, I'm going I'm to need to throw myself upon you afresh and say, God, have at it. Produce, ooze forth your love in my life in a way that I, ca I can't do on my own. Lord, I want to be known by the behavior of heaven, which is love. Which is merely a demonstration of your life. So Lord, whatever it is that you need to do in me, whatever you need to change or transform, Lord, I just freshly give you permission to say, have at it, do, what, do whatever it takes so that I am known as a Christian. Not that I just have a name or a title called Christian. Not that I just merely show up to church on a Sunday. But that my life is evidencing the reality of the kingdom of heaven and the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Lord, we want to be a body full of that. Lord, we don't want to just be individuals who show up and do our own thing. We want to be a body who is marked by love. Lord, I think that would change the world. So somehow allow our churches, Jesus, to be a place that is known for love. It's not that we're just overlooking sin. It's, it's that we're actually seeing the redemptive reality of what you're wanting to do and we're willing to work and bear with the person in the midst of their struggling so that we can see them set free so that we can actually see them walking in the life they are called to live that we don't just see the immediate action or the immediate attitude but we see wh what the potential is and we're willing to endure that which is in the current because we know what you are doing in the middle of them Lord we're willing to 
bear the pain and the hurt of, of love. Because loving like this is going to be painful for the one who is doing it. And it's going to take great humility to stoop down and wash the stinky feet of those around us. So Lord, make us willing. And Lord, let this not be duty. Let this not be a have to. Let this be delight. And we just can't help ourselves because we are Christians. We love you. Thank you for all that you're doing in these days. Just give you the praise and the glory. In your precious, powerful name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this study from the book of Ephesians with Nathan Johnson. If you would like additional resources to help you build your life around Jesus, I encourage you to check out my website at deeperchristian.com. This podcast is the audio version taken from my video series in Ephesians. And if you'd like to view the video version of this study, you can do so by going to deeperchristian.com forward slash Ephesians. Know I am cheering you on as you build your life around and upon Jesus Christ. See you next time.